0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us at patreon.com slash Left, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the long and storied history of the conflict between the U.S. and North Korea, including a look back at the Korean War and why it's Started, understanding the role we've played in the region, understanding North Korea's rationale for their own perspective, a look at our current negotiation tactics driving us toward war, and a quick look just scratching the surface of what a war with North Korea would likely entail. Our clips today come from Making Contact, The Ezra Klein Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Cape Up with Jonathan
1: Capehart, and The Inquiry. In the U.S., the war is a footnote buried in our history books, casually referred to as the Forgotten War. The Korean War has been brewing since the end of World War II. After dropping nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, U.S. soldiers divided Korea along the 38th parallel into north and south, and designated the area below the 38th parallel as an American occupation zone. When full-scale war broke out in the summer of 1950, Korea became a testing ground for the U.S. to hone the brutal tactics and technologies that they would later unleash on people around the world. The U.S. practiced things like saturation bombing in the South, and in the North designed bombing campaigns to exhaust the population. Within the first two years of the war, the U.S. had already destroyed every city, industrial area, and town in the North so they began bombing irrigation dams, flooding farmlands to cause mass starvation. Along with bombs, the U.S. poured 600,000 tons of napalm over the country, napalm that would burn through skin, muscle, and bone. It burned so hot it would suck the oxygen out of the air, suffocating everyone within the strike zone. Grace Cho is a historian, and wrote extensively about the war in her book, Haunting the Korean Diaspora, Shame, Secrecy, and the Forgotten War.
2: The summer of 1950 was unusually hot. This is how survivors of the war remember it, regardless of what temperatures actually registered on the thermometer. It was the first hot war of the Cold War, and entire villages were evacuated. Families gathered children and grandparents at a moment's notice, and carried sacks of rice and pieces of their homes on their backs. They walked south along paths that would soon be well-worn by the millions of displaced persons. They packed up and traveled down the length of the peninsula, toward Busan and then northward again, waded across rivers, and watched their children drown, finally to return to earth that had been scorched and to ghostly piles of ashes that had once been homes.
1: What they didn't know was that the U.S. military had been given, quote, complete authority to stop all civilian traffic in any direction, to place fire on them, including bombing and strafing fire from low-flying aircraft. There was no difference between Koreans living in the north and those living in the south. So the U.S., unable to distinguish who the enemy was, indiscriminately killed people seeking refuge. One of the most well-known massacres of civilians is the one that took place in Noguni in 1950. There, U.S. planes gunned down 400 civilian refugees, many of them families with young children.
2: The heat that summer was particularly memorable for what it did to the flesh that littered the landscape. During the days and weeks after Nogani, the few survivors returned to the site of the massacre to gather the remains of their family members. Hisuk was 16 in the summer of 1950. She escaped after witnessing the deaths of her mother, father, sister, and niece. Perhaps it had been the few words in English she called out to the Americans that had prevented them from shooting her. She continued walking southward, dazed, hungry, and encrusted with blood, Her white dress turned stiff and brown. She came to the Naktung River, where the American military were selectively allowing refugees to cross the river, but only if they were young and female. People were saying everywhere that GIs did bad things to women. Hisuk turned around and walked back to Nogani. It had rained a lot that summer, so where the massacre had taken place, there were pools of stagnant, bloodied water that contained the dead. There she waded through the stench of decomposing corpses and found the body of her father. It seemed that the bones and flesh moved separately. I virtually scooped up the remains of my father, like mucus, with the cup of my bare hands.
1: Nogunni was just one of 37 massacres documented in the south. There were countless more in the north the active targeting of civilians is part of what made the war in Korea different from wars the world had seen before. It got so bad that just one month in, Colonel Turner Rogers wrote a memo saying,
3: Our operations involving the strafing of civilians is sure to receive wide publicity and may cause embarrassment to the U.S. Air Force and U.S. government.
1: This awareness didn't change the military's practices. Instead, The Pentagon just stopped documenting the bombings of villages and started referring to these villages as, quote, military targets to avoid negative press. Two years later, officials from China, North Korea, and the U.S. signed an armistice agreement. We have stopped the shooting. A temporary ceasefire on armed conflict. But a peace treaty to end the war was never signed. Since then, the ongoing war enabled a buildup of U.S. military bases' weapons and troops in the South, and the development of a nuclear program in the North. For Korean people, the war unleashed trauma that would be passed on for generations. So for those who experienced the Korean War, the idea that war is something people would call for or invite in, it's unthinkable.
4: In Sangju and
1: Kimchan, small cities located on opposite sides of the mountain, people have been holding candlelight rallies to protest Thad every night for over a year. In Kimcheon, a group of moms and kids dance to an upbeat pop song about opposing Thad. Behind them, even more gather, light each other's candles, and catch up. Xiaoyan has lived in Kimchan his whole life.
5: At first, people were like, What is that? They didn't know what it was. They would say that if you opposed that, you were a North Korean, a sympathizer, a commie. The biggest problem was the
6: media. When
5: that was first announced, they said it was to block North Korea.
6: So people thought,
5: oh, if we don't have this, there won't be anything to block North Korea when they invade. But as time passed, people came to know more about THAAD and began to oppose it.
6: In
1: Kimtan and the area surrounding the THAAD deployment site, this is people's primary concern that THAAD was never meant to protect Koreans. Its location in Seongju County means that the system could not intercept missiles targeting Seoul, the area where half of South Korea's population lives. If anything, the U.S. installed the THAAD radar to spy on China. Since it was announced, China began a low-level trade war with South Korea, boycotting Korean products and even Korean pop stars. It's put South Korea in the familiar and uncomfortable position of having to navigate between the interests of two opposing powers, and a big part of the nightly protests, has been about asserting that Korean people should determine their own future.
6: In the beginning, 1,500,
5: almost 2,000 people would come out every night, but... As time went on, it became harder to come out. Last winter, there were about 150 of us who came out every day through the snow and rain. On average, there are 150 people who come out each night.: These are the people who are protecting Kimcheon and Korea
6: and the world.
1: For those 150 people, everything has changed..
5: There are no more weekends, free time, nights. But on the other hand, I met a lot of people who I feel stick together more than brothers and sisters, than family. We will continue to live together with more chong, So even more people have concern for each other and take care of each other.
1: In many ways, it's the community that's formed around opposing thad. That has made it possible for people to continue protesting. During busy seasons, people take care of each other's farms. Local bakers send bread and rice cakes for people to share at protests. They roast sweet potatoes over makeshift ovens and hand them out on cold nights. Even the kids write letters to the president and draw pictures about stopping Thad. But the biggest change may be in how people are thinking, not only about Thad but about the history they've been taught their whole lives.
7: Until now, we only received a partial education about the U.S. In writing, 미국, the U.S., we used the Chinese character for beautiful, for me. We learned from when we were young kids that the U.S. is an angel nation that protects our country without asking for anything in return. But but having this experience, seeing our land become U.S. military land, the U.S. behaving like everything is about their bottom line, I thought, we really don't know anything about the U.S. So I'd like the American people to move away from this dreamlike thinking. Like they believe they're protecting world peace. And if you watch a lot of movies like Superman, it always looks like the U.S. is a country that protects world peace. So they use these movies to make people around the world believe that. Instead of that, I wish they would make cultural works that show the real image of the U.S., people around the world know that the U.S. is not like that but even today's news they say the U.S. came here as an invited guest and they're doing this and that but we've come to believe that this is a lie many people have woken up to the reality of the U.S. And there's still many more people who need to
1: wake up to this. These questions. What if North Korea isn't the enemy? What if the U.S. isn't actually protecting South Korea? What is possible when we let go of these ideas?
8: So why don't we start in the history here? You talk in the book about how Koreans felt at, at the time their country was divided as if they were there were shrimp among whales that they were being buffeted by by the great powers around them. Can you talk a little bit about how we came to have a, a North and South Korea who did that and 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 how they set these forces into motion?
9: Well, um this good question because actually we did it. We divided the Korean Peninsula. At the end of World War II, Korea had been occupied for thirty-five years by the Japanese, and nobody really knew what to do with it. Nobody knew much about it, but nobody in the US knew much about it, um, what to do with it. There had been elaborate plans for the post war occupation of Germany and Japan, but not Korea. And at the same time there was, you know, a great fear in Washington that the Soviet Union would be um, exerting its influence and that it might actually try to seize the entire Korean peninsula. So two State Department officers, one of whom was Dean Rusk, who later became Secretary of State, kind of huddled in a basement with a a National Geographic map of the Korean peninsula and said, "Let's, let's divide it. And the U.S. wanted to keep Seoul, the capital, the largest city in the southern Southern District, and so they picked the thirty eighth parallel rather arbitrarily and this was really just a line on a map. Korea had never been divided in this way in fact, regional divisions tended to run east west not north south and you know of course, over time, this line hardened into um, you know an impermeable demilitarized zone across the peninsula but gradually people who had been more um left wing people who had fought the japanese tended to move north people with money landlords people who had worked in the japanese occupation government tended to move south and these populations became politically very different but they were you know they were the same people and just everybody had a relative heading to the other side And it was really, it was infuriating to the Koreans because they had been occupied and they thought they were going to have their independence. And they also felt like, unlike the Germans who were divided because of their guilt, because they had been aggressors in World War II, the the Koreans had been victims. They were divided because of their innocence. And it led to um, a, um, you know, a poor poor us attitude, which I think is still um, you know, very prevalent in in both Koreas, especially North Korea. That's part of the reason they blame the United States for the predicament that they're in now.
8: Backing up before Donald Trump took office, North Korea was a top concern for, for President Obama, for President George W. Bush, for President Bill Clinton. And I have often struggled with the question of how much should America care if North Korea has a weapon and delivery capabilities? You often will read these stories of, you know, North Korea might be developing a weapon that could that could reach Guam, that could reach Hawaii, that could reach a California coast. But obviously a lot of regimes have weapons that could reach America if they so chose. Is North Korea really a an, an international threat? Are are they really something that from a, an American perspective we should have? so much fear and concern about?
9: Well, the, you know, this is the great question. And I'm glad you asked it because, you know, I, I almost you know hesitate to say this, but this is a bit of a self-inflicted crisis. We we are very far away from North Korea and we don't really have, you know, a lot of interests in North Korea. And, you know, the South, a lot of South Koreans believe like, well, why doesn't, you know, that the U.S. is the problem? Why don't we get out of the... Peninsula and you know then we're not on that we're not in the way, and that our whole presence there is counterproductive and that view is very popular among um, young South Koreans. I lived in South Korea for more than four years, and you know you think that South Koreans are you know furious with North Korea and this this and that, but if you go to a demonstration an anti-North Korea demonstration in Seoul, you know, there'll be there'll be like 50 old men who are Korean war veterans who will show up. But if you go to an anti-U.S. demonstration, of which I've been to many, you see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, these candlelight marches. There is, you know, very much a view among a lot of Koreans that we are the problem. Do you agree with that view? Oh, you're going to get me in so much trouble. But... <laughs> Uh, I just like see the emails I'm gonna get. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm not saying like we should just pull out of South Korea, but we are. We are kind of the problem. And you know, I, I think almost any South Korean you talk to would say they're much more frightened of Donald Trump than they are of Kim Jong Un. Um, you know, the North Koreans are just doing what they always. What they always do, they're always threatening to turn Seoul into a sea of fire and unleash a thermonuclear war. And people in Seoul just shrug about it. And, you know, I found this too when I was living in South Korea that, you know, nobody would be talking about this stuff. And then I would like come home and people would start talking to me out like, is there going to be a war? Are you evacuating? You know, blah, blah, blah. They just. They sort of, you I know, mean, maybe they shrug too much, but they kind of shrug it off in South Korea because the North Koreans have been threatening for so long. I guess I'm going far afield now, but I don't, I don't believe that North Korea would launch an an unprovoked attack on the United States. You know, maybe a provocation, um, which they've done before, where they're testing, testing. They've certainly tested. South Korea in that way. They've sunk a ship. They've shelled a, an island near the border. But they know that if they start a war with South Korea, which is double their size in population, it's the end of their country. It's the end of their system. And you know, more importantly for all those people in the elite, it's the end of their life of privilege if they're not shot in the subsequent um, fighting, you know, they're going to be, at best, refugees in South Korea or China.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. You can start sleeping ahead of the curve with this sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. Aside from the original Casper mattress that I have been happily enjoying for a couple of years now, they've begun offering two other mattresses, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body, while the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. Regardless which one you choose, you know the prices will be affordable because Casper cuts out the middleman and ships your mattress directly to you in an impossibly small box. That's also why they can handle hassle-free returns in the unlikely event that you're not completely satisfied during their 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Now, for a limited time, they have a special offer going, visit casper.com slash savings and receive up to $200 off your purchase of $2,000 or more. This special offer expires February 20th, 2018, in just a week or so, and you can see details at casper.com slash terms. So don't forget, that deadline is February 20th, and you can head to casper.com slash savings to take advantage of this deal today.
10: One of the things that I think that Americans don't understand or don't think about is if you're old enough to remember the Vietnam era, or for that matter, any part you know from the McCarthy era forward, from the 1950s all the way to the fall of the Soviet Union, if you're old enough to remember that, um, you know what I'm talking about just, just from experience. And if you're not old enough to remember that, Um, You probably have heard about this, and if you take any history classes, you'll certainly learn about it. And that is that the reason that, first of all, that communism essentially was not uh, a nihilistic uh, political philosophy uh, or economic philosophy. In other words, it it wasn't a death cult, essentially. The whole point of communism was for everybody to have housing, for everybody to have medical care, for everybody to have food for everybody to have a job, for everybody to have, you know, the opportunity to live life in a positive and favorable way. That was the theory, right? It's not actually how it worked out, although I've known uh, many people over my lifetime, and particularly during the year that I lived in Germany, who have lived under both, you know, the communist East Germany and the, or, and the, and the Western West Germany. And, um, you know, who would say, East Germans, who would say, you know, it wasn't all that bad. Uh, you know, yeah, we had to wait in line for food sometimes, but, you know, nobody freaked out if they got sick. Nobody freaked out if, uh, you know, uh, he he never had to worry about finding an apartment or whatever. But the point is that because communism excluded the possibility of big corporations, right? The the state ran all the businesses. You had this huge corporate, I mean, (laughs) The entire corporate machine in the United States, the entire capitalist machine in the United States, from the banks to the to the manufacturers, to the politicians that they own, were all saying, oh, we can't have communism. And see, uh, of course, communism was an evangelical philosophy. Right. Karl Marx wrote this thing and he said, if only everybody would do it. Right. Evangelism, uh, evangelistic things always start out. If only everybody would. Right. So if only everybody would adopt this this way of living, then then life would be a paradise. And as I said, it didn't turn out, this is not a sales pitch for communism. I'm trying to make a point here about evangelism. And this is a really important point when you think about North Korea. So we went to war in South Vietnam and and North Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia illegally. We went to war to stop communism. It was a proxy war with the Soviet Union, arguably, and China. China, you know, Mao had taken over China with communism and, and the Soviet Union had a slightly different kind of communism. and and neither one of them were really the kind of communism that Karl Marx was pitching, but whatever. They were evangelical, and they were trying to spread their communism around the world. It had come to Cuba. We were freaked out about that. There were countries in Central and South America that were flirting with the idea of of, uh, maybe not communism, but something halfway there. And so because it was evangelical, we viewed the Soviet Union and 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 uh, they had the greatest power. China was just a third world country uh, for all practical purposes. But we viewed these communist countries, the North Vietnam, for example, as actual threats because they could evangelize Americans. They could convince Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and yes, I know there's still a debate about whether they were even guilty, but they could convince Americans to say, you know, America should become like the Soviet Union, and I'm going to work toward that. That that kind of thing, you know, they they because it was evangelical. The fear in the United States was that they would evangelize our people. Similarly, the, feeling, the fear of the Soviet Union, because they saw capitalism as a, as a corrupt system that produces poverty and suffering, and people don't have access to health care, and people are homeless, and their lives get wiped out, and there's no guaranteed jobs, and no guaranteed health care, and no guaranteed education, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff, that there was all there and free in the communist countries. The communists viewed us as a threat. And we were evangelical, right? We've got Freedom House, and we've got all these other right-wing organizations that or these neoconservative organizations, funded in many cases by the government, by our own government, plus our State Department outreaches, and so they viewed us as evangelical and therefore as a threat. I would argue that that the whole the biggest danger with regard to uh, Wahhabism slash um, uh, what Donald Trump would refer to as radical Islamic terrorism. Um, is its evangelical nature. The fact that it's evangelized, reaching around the world and trying to convert people to its way of thinking and its way of life. And similarly, they would argue, and in fact, I would even argue that at a a certain level and for slightly different reasons, that certain types of toxic fundamentalist Christianity, the the types that that want to control women's bodies, the types that want to to refuse to offer service to gay people, the, the, the types that that use Christianity to justify racism and sexism and misogyny, um, because they're evangelical, that they're toxic and dangerous. So put just consider that frame for a minute, that it's the evangelism of a particular society. See, I have no problem with a society saying, we have the best way of life on earth, for us right whether at, because this was i mean it, it, you go back and you read peter farb you know in first contact with native americans back in the late 1600s in the mid 1600s in the united states and every community he came across their word for human or person or man was the was considered the name of their language in other words you know i am i'm am apache that because apache is human right or, or whatever the word you know, it may be and i may be wrong about apache but generally speaking that was the case and And so as long as we say this is my way and I like it for me, that's fine. But when we start to say this is my way, I like it for me, it's the best way, it's the only way, you should have this way, and if you don't have this way, I'm going to bomb you, which is what we did with Vietnam. Right? It's what we've done around the world for years and years. It's what we've done in, in less violent ways, but arguably just as destructive. It's what we do with Chile. It's what we do with Argentina. It's what we do with Central America during the Reagan administration. We have done it over and over and over again. So, in this kind of thought cloud that I just shared with you, of all the different dimensions, whether they're political-slash-economic, communism versus capitalism, or whether they're religious, you know, evangelical Christianity, evangelical Islam, or you know the the more toxic versions of evangelical Christianity and Islam. Those are the things that can make a country dangerous. You'll recall the German belt buckles during the World War II. Hitler's army, their belt, bu- belt buckles said "Gott mit uns," God with us, and they believed it. Or the soldiers did. You know, I'm fighting for God, right? The Crusades, we're fighting for God. So. Put all that in, in like one little cloud here and, and set it off to the side. And now consider North Korea. How does North Korea represent a threat to us? They don't have a philosophy that they're trying to sell to us. It's a it's a kingdom with a king, basically. I mean, it's a feudal society. The the Kim family basically owns the country and owns all the people, just like feudal you know, feudal serfs were owned by the feudal lords. He's not trying to export it, not trying to sell it to anybody. He's not trying to convert. You know, other than the possibility of merging with South Korea, which is kind of an amorphous thing. But basically, it's not evangelical. He's not trying to expand his territory. You'll, you'll recall, German, you know, Hitler's first thing was, we need more living room, more breathing room, more room for good Germans. And so he he took the Sudetenland, the, you know the. The, the part of uh, northern Czechoslovakia, as I recall, and and then you know in, in thirty nine invaded Poland, and then we were off to the races. But it was all about expanding Greater Germany. We did the same thing. Uh, President Polk did it in the eighteen forties. Abraham Lincoln railed against the Mexican American War. We did the same thing in the eighteen in the late 1890s, eighteen nineties, eighteen uh, eighty nine, I think it was. That William Randolph Hearst said to Frederick Remington, who was down in Cuba. You know, the USS Maine blew up, right, and said, if you can get me the photos, I'll get you the war. And we got the Spanish-American War as a result of that, Um, you know, because, hey, you know, we're we're trying to expand our sphere of influence. Well, I don't see North Korea doing that. So it seems to me that they don't, frankly, represent a threat to us. They don't represent an ideological threat, a philosophical threat, an economic threat, a religious threat. They, They... But, you know, but with nuclear weapons, they could do a lot of damage if we attacked them. It appears to me that everything they're trying to do is defensive. And I don't know why we're not having this conversation in our media.
11: I remember being on on one of the MSNBC shows and there was a, yet another North Korea had taken over the show and one of the things i i said off camera to a republican strategist i said we have these two irrational actors who are you know tweeting back and forth at each other and hurling insults and i was corrected the republican operative said no 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 don't think kim jong un is irrational he's very rational because to him protecting the regime is the most rational thing that's that is what he's all about and i i see you you nodding that's the way we need to look at this
12: the the way uh, i've described it in other um uh, experts Uh, who I respect quite a bit, have talked about this is he is very rational within his own context, Kim Jong-un, that Mm -hmm. is, which is his nuclear capability is his um, insurance, right, on the continued existence of the regime. He is not, I think the best experts and intelligence analysts, if they were sitting here in the studio, would be telling you he is not suicidal, Mm-hmm. Right he is quite rational in trying to maintain the continued existence of the regime. that means continuing to have this nuclear capability as his hedge against anybody uh trying to overthrow that regime uh, and to um, to to stop his leadership that's why this kind of war of words i think can be potentially dangerous to the extent he that that being kim jong un miscalculates about we what we are or we are willing to do and at what um and at what point he may perceive us as being uh taking a a regime change approach and being willing to do that and does that then force him to act in a way uh, to protect the regime mm-hmm. so that that escalatory cycle is something that we've got to be very concerned about
11: you you said a moment ago you know that it's an odd thing for the united states to be on the outside looking in when it comes to what's happening with north korea and that leads to the larger question of of the united states's role in the world now after more than 70 years of being the leader of the the liberal democratic order democratic with a small d order that it seems like the United States is retreating from, it seems like every leadership position that it jealously guarded. Um, how, how are the, how do you think our allies are reacting to a situation where for the first time they probably don't think they can depend on the United States?
12: I suspect they're concerned, confused. Uh, Richard Haas has written about this, I think, quite well and talking about, uh, whether the U.S. is, is basically abdicating its decades-old, uh, role of being a leader of the liberal international order. I think you can look around the world and see evidence of this confusion and concern on the part of our allies. Angela Merkel saying very publicly last summer that Europe and, um, the kind of post-world War two order that was created and European leaders are going to have to not uh, think that they can automatically rely on the United States and they're going to have to in I'm paraphrasing now kind of fend for themselves mm-hmm. right you can kind of look across the world you see us isolated in the UN mm-hmm. uh, uh, as a result of this um, uh, this move on uh, the the uh, designation of, of Jerusalem as a capital, you know, going away from um, years and years of diplomacy and position of the United States that the status of Jerusalem should be uh, a matter for the for the parties in the final talks. Uh, now, whatever you think in its completely legitimate view uh, to take the position that the capital uh, or the embassy should be moved at some point—that's been in platforms across uh, administrations, right? Uh, Republican and Democrat, but to not seemingly have any strategy for it, right, puts us in a position where we are isolated in a UN vote where some 160 plus countries vote against the United States or abstain, right? Mm -hmm. It's never happened before. Um, So you see us pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, Right. Again, where we con- every country in the world to include Syria uh, right. is part of uh, is part of this arrangement. And we are on the outside pulling out of uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, uh, you know, contrary to uh, what is our kind of stated goal and stated interest, which is to improve our trade capabilities and um, leverage in the region. We find China now moving into that. Vacuum and having um, uh, uh, trade arrangements with uh, people in the region, countries in the region, that again have us on the outside looking in. That, I think, uh, is a real change from decades and decades of U.S. leadership.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. And and you know what company I'm talking about. It's basically the one company online. Uh, You you probably shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, or you have your standard selection of home goods delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. It'd be great if we could all avoid them somehow, but, you know, it's like climate change. What we really need is regulation, not just personal choices. So, until we can get some anti-monopoly trust-busting legislation passed, a lot of us are going to continue to make the not-completely-irrational choice of shopping there. So, whether you feel your conscience needs soothing or not, you can support the production of this show by using our affiliate link and redirecting some of those purchasing dollars to us. Your shopping experience is identical to usual and it won't cost you a dime more. So to get the link, go to bestoftheleft.com and use our banner to click through to either the US, Canada, or UK stores and bookmark the page so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. And the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
8: The other thing that we seem to be asking them to give up, at least in the terms in which the North Korean government has set it up, is their dignity. Trump has an unusual method of, of international diplomatic communication. And North Korea is a land where speaking out against the leader Gives you a death sentence, and Trump's constant provocations. I mean, I'm I'm sure you saw this many, many times, but he said that you know he can't believe Kim Jong Un called him old. He doesn't call Kim Jong Un short and fat, though clearly you know he (laughs) is. Um, You know he calls Kim Jong Un little rocket man. That I think even in a normal political system is problematic and, and unusual. But how does that kind of personal insulting read in the North Korean system with its much more stringent regulations on what you can say about the dear leader?
9: Well, you know, as I said earlier, it's a great gift to the North Korean regime to have – genuine hostile rhetoric coming out of the mouth of the U.S. president. You know, this is what they need. They need this, you know, to keep this warlike atmosphere going. And, you know, Trump is just playing into their hands. I also think, though, in a way, Trump's Trump's threats and his madman act, which is, you know, maybe an act, maybe real, has been sort of good in the early stages, I thought, okay, we don't have to sound so, you know, eminently reasonable about it. I think, at least initially, Trump scared them, as he scared many people, and that was not a bad thing. But you know, on both sides, you need more than hostile rhetoric. We had, you know, an armada supposedly steaming towards North Korea, but when that armada turned out to be in Indonesia, I think they, you know, so like, well, we're faking it. But I, I do think they've been scared of Trump, but. And that's that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I think it's good for them to think that he's mad and dangerous. But you need something else. You know, you need at the same time, there's not like one solution. You know, you need active diplomacy, you need some face saving tension de escalating moves. I think sanctions have been effective, especially some of the US sanctions on Chinese banks that we're dealing with. North Korea, that was very, very effective, but now the State Department has no staff, and that is not moving as fast as it should because there's no no staff the State Department to handle it. But, you know, all of these things, threatening them but giving them, you know, some escape path. People often invoke, you know, Sun Tzu on this, give the enemy at least some sort of route so that they don't fight to the death All of this needs to be done, and just the hostile rhetoric from Trump doesn't help.
8: Well, so this is my concern. I I understand the appeal of Mad Men strategic games, and obviously there's like a a great deep literature and game theory about it, but most of the time that has a quality of both sides actually have a plan, and both sides are, are fundamentally rational, but pretending a certain degree of irrationality. And the question that that North Korea and Trump together create is, what happens if the two sides don't understand each other? If maybe they're not actually that rational? And if a series of provocations connected to domestic political considerations, connected to miscommunications, creates an escalation structure, that ultimately nobody can can back down from. I mean, as much as maybe it's valuable to have North Korea a bit more afraid of us, it also seems like we are increasing the tail risk for something truly terrible to happen.
9: That's right, because it's very hard to have a controlled conflict in this atmosphere. You know, if something happens, as it does periodically, the the North Koreans shell a South Korean island, sink a boat, a missile goes astray there are no lines of communication between the US and the North Korea i mean there's some back channel stuff but that's not at a military level and you know the north koreans would be very motivated to you know reach for their big guns to escalate because they need to go nuclear or chemical or biological early in an all-out conflict, because they know that if they don't use it, it's going to be lost. And they feel their regime is going down. They could be very dangerous. I mean, in, in a way, that it's their weakness that makes them so dangerous. We're not fighting among equals, which is why deterrence doesn't work in the same way. I mean, I think deterrence still could work, but if something started, you know, it could escalate very, very quickly.
10: The North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, issued a statement in response to Donald Trump's UN speech in which he called him Rocket Man and said that he was on a suicide mission. I talked about this, I think it was day before yesterday, uh, at some length, about the idea that North Korea is not evangelical, uh, whereas... The, the old Soviet communists were aggressively evangelical, you know, turned the entire world into us. Um, Nazis, the Nazism, you know, is extremely evangelical. The Americanism is uh, extremely evangelical. Um, many, many of these, you know, and, and this is just, you know, political evangelism. Um, but North Korea has basically just been saying, you know, leave us alone and let us be a functioning country. So, you know, there is one school of thought that says that Kim is a crazy man who wants to start a war. I don't believe that. I don't subscribe to that. I, 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 Kim, I mean, why would he want to do that? He's, he's living a life of luxury. He's got all his wealth and power. Um, he doesn't want his country to be leveled. The destruction of North Korea during the Korean War in the, in the uh, you know, around 1950 was Unbelievable. I mean, it was just Pyongyang, the the capital city, was more than 90 percent destroyed. It was just extraordinary. And he doesn't want to go back to that. Uh, He doesn't want that. What he's trying to do is prevent his country from being Iraq. You know, George, this all goes back to George W. Bush and that stupid speech that David Frum wrote for him in which he called North Korea, Iran and Iraq, the axis of evil and you know, Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein he said, hey, I'm not evil. Bring in your inspectors, send in enhanced blicks. Everything's fine. I got no weapons of mass destruction. It's all good. We're, we're going to be a nice neighbor. And, you know, of course, we killed him. And so Iran and North Korea, looking at that, said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> we're not going to let that happen to us. And we got to get a nuke. And so we've got now this deal with Iran to freeze their nuke, and North Korea, of course, is building their nuke. But I think it's important that we actually listen to what Kim Jong-un has to say. And I realize that that kind of thoughtful um, uh, analysis of what's going on in the world is not popular generally in American journalism or American popular media, that it's uh, people would much rather make fun of Kim or uh, ridicule him or whatever. But I, But there's... Some serious stuff here, and so I just I, I just wanted to share with you the um, the actual speech um, that that Kim Jong Un wrote or spoke. This is just just so you know, right? Because the media is not going to tell you the uh, he said the speech made by the us president in his maiden address on the un arena in the prevailing serious circumstances in which the situation in the korean peninsula has been rendered tense as never before and is inching cl- closer to a touch and go state is arousing worldwide concern shaping the general idea of what he would say i expected now keep in mind this is kim jong un talking about donald trump's speech at the un Shaping the general idea of what he would say, I expected he would make stereotyped, prepared remarks a little, a little different from what he used to utter in his office on the spur of the moment as he had to speak on the world's biggest official diplomatic stage. But, far from making remarks of any persuasive power that could be viewed to be helpful by diffusing detention, he made unprecedented, rude nonsense no one has ever heard from any of his predecessors. A frightened dog barks. Louder. I would like to con- to advise Trump to exercise prudence in selecting words, and to be considerate of whom he speaks to when making a speech in front of the world. See, as I keep saying, what they want is safety and respect, essentially. Back to Kim. Back to what Kim had to say. The mentally deranged behavior of the U.S. president openly expressing on the U.N. arena the unethical will to, quote, totally destroy a sovereign state, beyond the boundary of threats of regime change or overturn of social system, makes even those with normal thinking faculty think about discretion and composure. His remarks remind me of such words as political layman and political heretic, which were in vogue in reference to Trump during his presidential election campaign, After taking office, though, Trump has rendered the world restless through threats and blackmail against all countries of the world. He is unfit to hold the prerogative of supreme command of a country, and he is surely a rogue and a gangster, fond of playing with fire rather than a politician. His remarks, which describe the U.S. option through straightforward expression of his will, have convinced me, rather than frightening or stopping me, that the path I chose is correct, and that it is the one I will have to follow to the last. Now that Trump has denied the existence of and insulted me and my country, keep in mind Trump did not say Kim Jong-un, he said rocket man. Now that Trump has denied the existence of and insulted me and my country in front of the eyes of the world, and made the most ferocious declaration of a war in history, that he would destroy the DPRK, North Korea, we will consider with seriousness Exercising of a corresponding highest level of hardline countermeasure, the highest level of hardline countermeasure in history. Action is the best option in treating a dotard who, hard of hearing, is uttering only what he wants to say.
3: David Maxwell moved on from the front line, up the chain of command, and eventually helped plan the response to a possible second North Korean invasion. They have a 1.1
13: million man active duty army. About 70 to 80 percent of the forces are forward deployed between Pyongyang and the DMZ. I just want to linger on this 1.1 million number. Is that a big army? With their reserve forces of some 6 million, I think they're the fourth largest army in the world. So we
3: have the fourth largest army in the world in a country with something like the 50th largest population. That surely tells you something. We've heard how the last war started with a miscalculation. How might another start? Miscalculation.
13: The worst path to war will be Miscalculation by
3: Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un is the current North Korean leader, grandson of the man who started the first Korean War. The scenarios that could lead to war is when
13: Kim Jong-un believes he is threatened. And this can be an external threat by a preemptive strike from the United States, by a miscalculation of alliance military moves, where he thinks the regime is subject to extreme threat.
3: Let's look at why the U.S. might attack. North Korea's missile program has changed dramatically under Kim Jong-un. Recent headlines have focused on the effort to make missiles fly further. But there's another element. It's also thought that some of the growing number of tests, 13 so far this year, are training exercises. So not just testing if missiles work, but preparing soldiers to use them. All this increases the chance of what David Maxwell calls an American preemptive strike. And if Kim Jong-un believes that one is coming he may order his commanders to start a war. So
13: if I'm a North Korean commander, I will unleash the firepower of my artillery and inflict as much death and destruction on the South as I can. And in the first hours, there will literally be hundreds of thousands of artillery rounds and rockets fired to the South, and many of them into Seoul. How long does it take a shell to get from North Korea to Seoul? Well, not, not very long. We're talking less than minutes. South Korea prepares defensively. They conduct civil defense drills every month. But when you have 25 million people in the greater Seoul metropolitan area, it is not a simple matter to get people into protective areas. And of course, you know, many people won't get the word, won't believe it. Many people will be caught out in the open or caught in buildings that will end up being rubbled. projections of initial casualties, there'd be 64,000 killed on the first day. In the first day? Uh, in the first day. The scale of suffering is something that we cannot imagine, and that really has not happened since the Korean War started in 1950. The scale of the suffering is not the only thing that will harken back to the 1950s. What they want to do is rapidly occupy the peninsula, get North Korean forces all the way to the south, just as they intended to do in 1950. And then, because of the tremendous suffering of Seoul, to coerce what's left of the South Korean government to sue for peace and to allow unification of
3: the peninsula under North Korean control. The last time the North Koreans tried this, they didn't expect the Americans to come running. This time, there can be no doubt They've signed a pact promising to be there in the event of attack.
9: Part 3. The Cavalry
4: So here we are, 48 hours into the conflict.
3: Our next expert
4: witness picks up the story. We will be desperate, desperate to make sure that the North Koreans cannot take Seoul. He's
3: Dr. Bruce Bechtel, a professor at Angelo State University in Texas and, formerly, the Pentagon's top Northeast Asia analyst.
4: I don't think our pilots are going to be getting a whole lot of sleep during the first week or so of this conflict. Our task will be to use air power to hold those guys off as much as we can until we can get heavier stuff in there. The
3: pilots will be busy bombing North Korean forces as the rest of the American war machine cranks up. Its vast arsenal is spread around the globe. Within moments of a North Korean
4: attack, an order will go out to get it moving. The first thing you've got to do is to get all your stuff combat loaded on ships. Tanks, trucks, armor, artillery, infantry, all the stuff that goes with that. And that will take anywhere from three or four days for the U.S. Marine Corps guys coming in out of Japan to almost three weeks for the heavy tanks to come in all the way from Texas. Wait a minute, the tanks that are going to help fight in Korea are in Texas? That's correct. Heavy air, heavy artillery, heavy tanks, that stuff is located all over the United States and some of it's in Europe. That stuff takes time, up to three weeks to get over there. Bechtel says three weeks into the war will be a decisive moment. The North Koreans have about two to three weeks of stocks, ammunition, food, fuel, etc. to fight a war. That's all they got. So their war plan has to include accomplishing all of the goals that they have within that short time frame. Because after that, they're living off the land.
3: Imagine a million North Korean soldiers scavenging for food. And then imagine the bitter North Korean winter when nothing grows. So three weeks into this war, the North Koreans are starting to run out of everything, just as the South Koreans are starting to get all that American help. These forces you've described coming from Texas, Europe, points all around the globe, are converging on South Korea now to engage with the North Koreans. Where do they go? Where do you point them?
4: Well, after several weeks, if things have gone good for the North Koreans, then what comes to the fight is pushing them back with our ground forces literally up the peninsula. And that's going to be a big chore. And let me tell you why. If you just look at the sheer numbers, it becomes kind of daunting. The North Korean army is 11 times bigger than it was in the last Korean War. This is going to be a big task. But he has no doubt who'd prevail. As the war starts to go bad for them, most units will start to collapse. Their command and control will start to collapse. Their unit cohesiveness will start to collapse, etc. Once their army starts to collapse, it's going to be a very, very rapid de-escalation of uh, conflict. And he says that's
3: when things could go nuclear.
4: When Kim Jong-un and that 5,000 to 7,000 guys that are in his elite know they have to leave North Korea or they'll be on meat hooks in a few weeks, right? Just like Mussolini. When they know that, then what reason do they have not to use the nukes and take out several hundred thousand Americans with them? And that's the most likely scenario for them using the missile like we saw them test a couple of weeks ago.
3: Nuclear weapons are a wild card in all this, but Bruce Bechtel says even a conventional war with North Korea would be unprecedented. We will see
4: a horrible loss of human life. Let me give you the numbers. Probably 300 to 400,000 in the first week, civilian and military. Probably over 2 million by the time three weeks is up.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Making Contact Look Back at the Korean War. On The Ezra Klein Show, they discuss the history of some of the problems of the Korean Peninsula— Tom Hartman argued that only evangelical cultures are a danger to others. On Cape Up, they pointed out the important fact that the North Korean regime is not actually irrational as Americans often like to imagine. In a second clip from the Ezra Klein show, they discuss Trump's recent negotiating tactics. In a second clip from the Tom Hartman program, Tom reads a portion of Kim Jong-un's response to Trump's threats. And finally, we just heard the inquiry do a bit of a dive into how a war with North Korea might actually play out. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
14: Hi, it's Aaron from Philly calling about uh, some of the questions and confusion uh, that Jeff from North Carolina had regarding ranked choice voting. And I think I see where the confusion is, and, and this is something that took me a couple of reads on the subject to get my head around one of the features of ranked choice voting is not just the your vote gets transferred to your second choice candidate it's that it requires some minimum threshold of votes received before someone can win you know i think that's the confusion we have here i think it's one of the the worst features of the current system that the u.s has for elections is that a Plurality candidate can win somebody who doesn't receive more than fifty percent of the vote. And you know, Bill Clinton didn't get fifty percent of the vote, um, for example, when he ran against both George H. W. Bush and Ross Perot. And I think that's uh, a feature of things like the jungle primary in California, where you can have ninety-five candidates running, and they just pick the top two to go into the general election. And you know, those top two probably only got or conceivably only got 5% of the vote each, but because it's just whoever gets the top two number of votes, regardless of any kind of threshold, they win. Um, Or, you know, the most recent Republican primary, where there were 16 candidates for the GOP, so even if Trump was only getting 20% of the total votes, he was considered the winner because, you know, and and this was talked about a lot at the time, you know, the the more established Republicans like Rubio or um, Cruz, God help us, you know, were, were splitting the vote amongst themselves and so somebody with a plurality but not a majority could win and ranked choice voting doesn't allow for that. You have to meet 50%. Uh, this is a system that I believe is used in a few European countries. France, I believe, uses it, um, but don't quote me on that. But that's one of the, the key features and I think one of the things that really, no matter what system we choose in the U.S., really has to be implemented is that you can't win with less than a majority of the vote, that that just shouldn't be possible. Uh, and I think that clears up a lot of these problems. Thanks, as always, and stay awesome.
15: Hi, Jay, this is Arielle from Memphis, and I'm calling in response to Jeff from Cleveland. And I'd been intending to call and then figured you'd probably be buried in voicemails on this topic. So I held off. And then I just heard at the end of this latest episode that no one has called in. So I figured I'd throw my two cents in. So Jeff's comment about how the Me Too movement has gotten really big and broad is something I would completely agree with. However, I don't think that's a bad thing. A lot of these behaviors exist on really a spectrum. And if you can talk about things like harassment and obnoxious behaviors when they're honest mistakes and fixable, it's a lot easier to deal with those, whereas if those are left unchecked, a lot of times that can sort of evolve into the more predatory and more aggressive harassment and sexual assault. So while I agree that it's a very broad movement and Sometimes conflating things like harassment and obnoxious behavior with assault can be damaging. I do think it's important to talk about them together because one really leads to the other. And if we draw these sort of intermediate lines of, well, that's not as bad, then we're just really leaving space for things to grow and fester. And if you wait too long, it's unfixable and unacceptable and unexcusable. So... That's why I think it's really important to talk about all of these behaviors together so that they can be addressed at the earlier stages. So there are my two cents. Thanks for the awesome show. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, Ariel, who we just heard from, after she left that message, she actually called back to clarify that she had been listening to the show, heard my call for comments on the subject, immediately called in, and then listened to what I had to say and realized, oh, it sounds like you sort of said everything I said anyways. Oops. But I played it because I'm not even sure that's true. I, I think that, first of all, it's important to re-emphasize the point she was making, um, but also she did, I think, a better job than me of making a connection of why it's important to recognize that all those things are together on a spectrum because it, it allows you to address things early before they fester and get worse. And I just think that's a really good way to put it. And it's sort of fundamental to the rest of what I'm going to say today and why it's important to hold that line, basically. So there's the idea that uh, you know people still believe, for some reason, that there are those out there who cannot discern between different actions. Microaggression, harassment, assault, rape— Even though they all have different names and different descriptions, they believe that uh, people other than them are not smart enough to be able to understand that and treat them all the same. So I got an email from Shannon with the subject line, yes, they do treat them all the same. And she says in part, quote, I happen to agree with Jeff, with a G, that there are those that are treating these issues all the same and it is bad for the victims, unquote. However, again, like Jeff with G, no evidence was presented to really back up this claim other than this one sentence. Continuing, quote, Senator Gillibrand is an example of someone who doesn't separate the differences in infractions. While I agree with her initial cause, she is a witch hunter who wants every man or woman that has ever at any point in their life crossed any line to resign from their jobs, unquote. And I still don't even see that sentence, if you take it at exactly its face value, I don't even see that as backing up her claim. I would say, come back to me when Gillibrand recommends that Al Franken be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and be put on the sex offender registry, or inversely, when she says that rapists shouldn't be prosecuted or jailed just so long as they've been fired from their jobs, then I'll believe that she treats all of these issues the same. And, and this is where I think the problem is. No one has a hard time understanding that two actions can be on the same spectrum without being the same thing. Everyone's clear on that. But some confusion arises when a baseline of repercussions are set that apply to many things on that spectrum. For instance, Gillibrand wanting all politicians who are either sexual harassers, abusers, or rapists to all resign doesn't mean that she necessarily thinks all of these actions are identical just that they all rise above the baseline for the repercussion of losing the ability to serve one's constituency as an elected representative in the public trust essentially the idea that sexual harassment is at or above that baseline and then that by default anything worse than that is also automatically covered by the same principle you know and frankly not sexually harassing people should be seen as a pretty low bar to cross to keep one's job as an elected official. Uh, Now, people like Shannon and Jeff with a G aren't confused that these acts are different. They're just convinced that other people can't grasp this concept as well as they can. And uh, now to hopefully help illuminate how this misconception happens, here is an edited clip from Alan from Connecticut's latest thoughts on this issue
16: rape is not okay but cat calling is not as bad and uh, although it's not acceptable is is somewhat okay right is is that if i'm understanding you know like that shouldn't be as bad as which kind of reminds me of the conversation i had with my son when a lot of this was was coming out he was like well a lot of those guys are terrible dad but that one guy he's not as bad as the others and and if you recall that that interest me as well. So where does that line, where's that line drawn? Where's that cat call that's inappropriate, but not as bad as rape? When does, what, what behavior becomes now as bad as rape? Like, where's that line? Where's that progression go from green to yellow to red? Um, and so to use your court analogy, right, when you have a trial, The trial consists of a jury that says guilty or not guilty right so someone comes forth and says you know someone has been inappropriate or wronging me in one way or another whether it be rape or or whether it be catcalling or inappropriate behavior at work right there's that process that happens that says is this person guilty or not guilty of that there needs to be an investigation absolutely the accuser has to be taken seriously Um, but in any human resources or any situation there's there's a judgment that's made whether it be by a jury or not to make a decision the sentencing comes later in a jury trial right the judge comes up with the sentence which is you know, you do 10 years, you do five years, you, you know, get parole. But you know, whatever that punishment is going to be for the cat call versus the rapist, I agree that there might be a discrepancy in in how that happens. But it's still a guilty verdict. Like you still did it and are guilty of that and need to own up to that. So I, I think that's pretty straightforward to me. And I think in looking at how the sentencing piece of that may occur might be different. And and that's where um, there may be some leniency. And I also think that in the discovery piece of that, the investigation of that, you would root out a false accuse.
0: Now, does anyone aside from the criminal lawyers in the audience know what Alan is missing? He goes from the victim's accusation to the trial to a guilty verdict and then finishes with sentencing. And this, I think... Perfectly skips over the part that people like Jeff with a G and Shannon think gets skipped over, but not for the reasons that they believe. They believe that it gets skipped over because no one understands it. I think it gets skipped over because everyone understands it so well. That they don't feel the need to explain it now the thing that alan skipped past is a very important part of the trial system in fact uh, this is the part that makes many say that prosecutors are the most powerful people in the justice system more so than either the police or the judges and the fancy lawyers word for it is prosecutorial discretion and what it describes is the process of deciding what if anything to charge someone with. In Allen's hurried description, he skipped from the accusation to the trial without the system first deciding what the person is to be officially accused of. And during that process, there is a huge amount of gradients in our criminal code. You know, we don't just have murder. We have murder in the first degree, second degree, third degree. And then below that, we have manslaughter. Also, manslaughter in the first degree, manslaughter in the second degree, etc. Same goes For sexual assault, for instance, first degree, second degree, third degree. degree—like Our system already understands that there are different things that fall under different degrees within the same word. Now, similarly, in the courts of public opinion and the courts of feminist outrage alike— that prosecutorial discretion happens all the time. It's just sort of invisible. But it happens just like in the courts of law. And I think the number one reason why it doesn't get talked about more is because it's so completely fucking obvious to almost everyone that no one thinks it needs to be explicitly mentioned. You know, for example, no one goes around thinking that Bill Cosby, Donald Trump, Al Franken, and Aziz Ansari are all guilty of the same thing even if you think that they're all guilty of actions that exist on the same spectrum, or even if you understand that Donald Trump has been accused of harassment and Al Franken has been accused of harassment, or that Donald Trump has been accused of assault and Aziz Ansari has been accused of assault, they're actually different kinds of assault, and any reasonable person would recognize that. So, you know, if you take the accusations for all these people seriously, you would conclude that Cosby is a serial rapist, Trump is is a serial harasser and abuser who has probably just merely dabbled in rape. Uh, Al Franken is probably a serial harasser. And Ansari has been accused once of assault. But the difference doesn't end there. The, the accusation against Ansari was nothing like the grab him by the pussy kind of assault that Trump does. It was essentially a failure-to-attain-affirmative-consent sort of assault, which probably isn't even illegal in New York yet. But if it were it would be like the lowest level of sexual assault, you know, third degree sexual assault or whatever. So a couple of really simple things. A, I don't see why any reasonable person would think that all those things are the same or even close to the same. I don't really think anyone is confused about that. And B, I think it's important to recognize that they're all related, even though they're different. And it's not really that confusing. And the only real problem seems to be that there are those who themselves understand this while insisting that others don't. So to direct a question at people like Shannon and Jeff, how dumb do you think these women are who you are accusing of not being able to see this difference, and why do you insist on thinking they are so dumb? And also, why don't you ever present any convincing evidence to back up your claim, you know? Point me towards someone who doesn't understand this concept, and I will happily try to educate them with you. Now, I already have some more queued up on this subject for the next episode, so sit back and uh, wait to enjoy that, but... Do not hesitate to continue chiming in. As always, give us a call, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best Progressive Media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.